Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the gospel will come alive in your heart and you will see Jesus more clearly. Up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We've been working our way through the gospel of Mark for a few months now and we finally made it to chapter 7. I trust that this has been... uh, for those of you that are a regular part of this church, an encouraging study, I've, I've just been loving the Gospel of Mark as we've been going through it. But once you find it, let's stand up together. If you, need a, if you need a Bible, we've got some in the back for you. You can take one of those. Most of you have a smartphone, though, which means you've probably got a Bible on you at all times. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him... With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they, came, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that this word is alive, that it's not just the recounting of historical tales and things that had happened, but it is your voice speaking to your people. And so we pray, God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us from your word this morning. Lord, give us hearts that are receptive. Give us us ears that are eager to hear your voice and your word. Pray, God, that we would be transformed for this time that we have spent together this morning. Change us, Lord, into your likeness. Lord, I pray for myself as I preach that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. This is an intense scene that we're looking at this morning. There is 
some serious conflict going on here. The confrontation is sharp and direct and deadly serious, as we're going to see. And, and just to kind of get us in the, in the frame of reference of what's going on, this delegation of Pharisees and scribes have walked from Jerusalem. That's 90 miles away. They have taken a 90-mile trip, which in those days is massive, in order to deal with Jesus. Jesus right now is at the height of his popularity. This is sort of a pinnacle moment, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been growing in popularity, and from this moment on, that popularity is going to shrink. This is a, a pivotal key moment. But people currently are coming from all over to see Jesus. They're bringing people to Jesus. Jesus is, is healing people. He's preaching to people, doing miraculous things. Jesus is famous. He's so famous that these Jewish authorities have come all the way from Jerusalem, walking 90 miles in order to, to, to see him. This is, this is the equivalent of something's going on in town and the feds have come from D.C. to check it out. That's what's going on right now in this scene. Because there is a movement growing, Jesus isn't just famous He's not just a celebrity. There is a bit of a, a messianic fervor going on. So we read a couple weeks ago that Jesus is, is performing miraculous feats and he has to escape the crowd because they meant to make him king by force. And so Jesus is not just popular. There, there is a, a growing movement uh, coming up around him. And this monumental figure the Pharisee sees as a major threat because he seems to be undermining 300-some years of their tradition. And so Jesus is a real threat to these Pharisees, and they have come to investigate him. But really what they've come to do is not just investigate and see, hey, maybe he's a good guy, maybe he's a bad guy. They've actually come to isolate and intimidate him. They have come to shut him down. They have come to hopefully find some way he's breaking the law of Moses so that they can kill him. That's the goal behind this whole delegation coming to find Jesus. We're going to shut this down. We're going to find him doing something wrong and we're going to put him to death. And so here we are at this scene, this standoff between Jesus and the teachers of the law. And so if you've still got your Bibles open in Mark 7, uh, we're going to just work our way through these verses. If you don't have them, this would be a good time to just open them up again. Look at verse 1. Now the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So they've come to intimidate Jesus, they've come to isolate Jesus, they've come to shut him down, and some of his disciples are eating lunch, and they take note, these guys did not wash their hands before they ate. Now as a kid, I just rejoiced in, in this passage. You know what? If it's good enough for the disciples, it's good enough for me. I don't need to wash my hands, Mom. That's not what's going on here. This isn't a matter of, of guys being, I've sort of heard this presented before, of like, Oh, these were just everyday, ordinary, gross guys. That's not what it's talking about. It's not a matter of personal hygiene. It's a religious issue. That's why Jesus freaks out on them when they ask this question. The issue is they didn't ceremonially wash their hands. So Mark tells us in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And so, so we see, Mark tells us, because Mark is writing to non-Jewish people, so he's sort of explaining all of these things to people who don't understand it, people like us, so that we don't make the mistake of thinking this whole thing was about personal hygiene. 
and, and eating with dirt under your fingernails. And so Mark explains to us this is a tradition uh, of the Jews. This is something they all do. This is something they hold to. And so these Jewish leaders who are looking for something just found it. They came to surround Jesus and they immediately find, hey, this is, this is a real thing we can accuse him of. This isn't something we have to make up. People have been making things up about Jesus. We'll see as, as the gospel continues, people making things up about Jesus. This is something real. We can actually accuse him of this. He's really guilty of this. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so these Pharisees and scribes are, are bringing up, really raising two questions here underneath this question that they're asking. This question, why do your disciples not keep to the tradition of elders? Why do they eat with defiled hands? And, and underneath that question is two questions, two questions that are really important for us today, two questions that, that couldn't be more vital uh, in, in our lives as well as throughout history for Christians. And, and question number one is, what actually makes something defiled before God? What makes something unclean? What makes something sinful? What is it that makes something either good or bad in the eyes of, of God? And second, what authority do we live our lives under? What, what gets to determine the answer to that question? When we talk about what is God honoring or what is sinful? What is, what is pure and what is defiled? And the question is, who, who gets to decide that? Is it going to be the same for everybody? What is the standard we'll measure our lives against? Well, to understand where, where these guys are coming from, we have to know something about them. And so we've talked a lot about this as we've gone through the, the Gospel of Mark. The Old Testament canon closes with the book of Malachi, and there's a 400-year period. Sort of the last prophecy of the Old Testament is, there is one coming who will prepare the way for the Messiah. And so if there's a 400-year span there where, where, where apart from the fact that they've got the Old Testament, God speaking, there's no prophet speaking the words of God to the people. So that's, that's called 400 years of silence in this intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament until John the Baptist comes on the scene and then Jesus comes on the scene. Well, during that 400 years, a lot happened with God's people. A, a, a lot of things happen, and, and if you know your Old Testament, you know the history of God's people is God gave them his word, God made a covenant with them, God commanded them live a certain way, and they were continually disobedient, and so God would bring a nation in to judge them, and they would maybe be carried off into captivity, maybe they would be subjected to someone else's rule. Well, that has played out over and over and over again to, to now, uh, as we read in the Gospel of Mark, God's people are really being controlled by Rome. Rome is the, the, the group that's in power, and their expectation is the Messiah is going to come and he's going to break the bonds of Rome. He's going to set us free. And so it's during, during this 400 years of silence from God that this new class of people emerges, legal experts, experts in the law of God. And so as the people in the, in the Old Testament and in this intertestamental period had broken God's law repeatedly and come under God's judgment, this group of people came about who said, what we have to do is get back to obeying the law. We have to get back to honoring God. We have to, we have to stop breaking God's law or else we're constantly going to be under God's judgment. That's good, right? It is. I'm glad you guys are enthusiastic this morning, and that makes me excited. No, <laughs> it's true. It's not a bad thing to say, hey, we should obey and honor God, right? That's, that's good. 
that it would go well with us instead of coming under a curse. So, so the idea at the beginning, not so bad. What happened, though, was this giant list of rules began to form uh, so that if, if God's law is don't walk off the edge of this stage, we're going to put a fence back here. Nobody's going to even get close to breaking the law. And so what happens is they come up with this list of rules, and it's no longer necessary for an individual to say, what would honor God in my life? It's just consult the list of rules and obey them. And that's it. And so can you see how step by step that starts off as a good thing? We do that with our kids, right? When they're really little, we don't go into full detailed explanations of what happens if you step out onto the road until they get a little bit older. But we make sure they understand that it is forbidden to cross this line in the front yard. Don't you go any closer or there's punishment. And so it starts off as sort of an idea to, to get the people to obey God. But what it caused was people never had to think about what honors God, what dishonors God. It was just, here's the rule, keep the rule. And so these traditions of the elders that they're talking about, they're not the, the biblical law. They're not the Old Testament law. They're not even the traditions of the, the biblical patriarchs, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. It is the oral traditions of these legal experts, these people who crept up during this 400 years who came up with all of these laws, it is there. They're not written down at this point. It is the oral traditions. These are all the rules they came up with. They came up with all these, here's God's law, and then they came up with a stack of laws on top of that too. And that is the tradition of the elders. And the Pharisees' entire lives were about those laws. Not even so much about God's law. It was about those laws because those were the really important laws because as long as you keep those laws, you're never even going to get close to God's laws. And, and what gave them their standing was they knew them inside and out. They had them all memorized. They knew what rabbi so-and-so had said as compared to what this other rabbi said. And that was sort of how they made their money. That was, that was where they had their, their uh, sort of niche in society is we are experts in these oral traditions. Later, these would be written down. They're still around today. It's called the Mishnah, uh, and it's these thousands of laws. It was their entire religion. Obey these rules. And so, w when we talk about this teaching on hand washing, this thing that they're so upset about, again, it's not about hygiene, it's a ceremonial act. So, before every meal and in between each course, of every meal, hands had to be washed a certain way. It was a ceremonial thing. So, so if you didn't do it, it wasn't just that you had bad manners. It meant to the Jewish mind that you were unclean before God. You were defiled. And so, so if you didn't do the right thing in the right way before you ate and in between each course of your meal, as they saw it, you had just become unclean. You had become defiled in the eyes of God. In fact, if you didn't do this, you were subject to the attacks of a specific demon named Shibta. They, I don't know why they made that up, but they did at some point. This demon will get you if you don't wash your hands right when you're eating. And, and this will bring on poverty and sickness and destruction. Your whole life will fall apart if you don't obey this. Bread eaten with unclean hands, hands that had not been ceremonially washed, was considered the same as eating excrement. You could have really clean hands but not do the ceremonial thing, and in their mind, 
they're just horrified by what you're doing. And so there's all these stories of, of rabbis, one who was imprisoned and he was only given a little allotment of water uh, and it nearly cost him his life because he wouldn't drink it because he needed that water to do the ceremonial hand cleaning uh, so that he could um, drink the water that he wasn't drinking because he needed it to wash his hands with. Uh, the, the, another rabbi failed to wash his hands ceremonial, ceremonially before he ate. He ate with unclean hands, and he was excommunicated for the rest of his life, and he was actually buried in excommunication, completely separated from everyone else. This was a huge deal to them. There, there were certain animals that were considered unclean. A woman was unclean after childbirth or during her menstrual period. Lepers were unclean. Anyone or anything that touched a dead body. Gentiles were unclean. That's just non-Jewish people. Uh, Samaritans were unclean. Tax collectors were unclean. Anything any of these came into contact with was unclean. If, if a tax collector touched your house, your house was unclean. And any food touched by any of these people was considered unclean. And so when a strict Jew went to the market, he's surrounded by all of this uncleanness, all of these things that have been defiled. So he'd immerse his whole body in clean water to take away the uncleanness. And in the same way, vessels became unclean. So that's why Mark tells us in verse 4 about the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels. In the Mishnah, once this oral tradition was written down, it took 186 pages to go through all of the rules about ritual cleansing. And so that's what these guys are talking about. And they, they look at the disciples and they say, what you're doing is not a matter of physical cleanness. You are unclean before God. Jesus, you claim to be a rabbi. You claim to be a holy man. And your disciples are defiled and you don't care that they're doing this. And so it's really important for us to remember as we look at this, and I know that it's a dangerous thing to start a sermon by going through all of this talk about ritual cleanliness and your faces all tell me that my, my fears of danger are confirmed. But we actually have to understand this or we have no idea what's going on. We just see them asking a question about washing hands and then Jesus flying off the handle. We actually have to know what's happening here. We have to remember this. This is not what God required in the Old Testament. This thing that they're upset about, this law that Jesus is breaking, this pivotal moment, which from now on Jesus is going to become less and less popular, this moment that will lead directly to his death, this moment is not about God's law. It's about man's law. It's about man's Rules. According to the scripture, only the priests had to do any kind of ceremonial washing, and then that was only when they were going to go into the tabernacle or if they had touched someone with some kind of bodily discharge. That's the only ceremonial washing that needs to happen. That was pretty much it. So this clash between Jesus and the Pharisees, we have to understand that to know this is about how does someone become clean or unclean in the eyes of God, pure or defiled, and by whose authority do we live our lives? How do we know what's good? How do we know what's true? And so for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this oral tradition was their authority. This is the thing they're most 
concerned about. And so this passage uses language. Verse 3, the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, many other traditions. Verse 5, the tradition of the elders. Verse 7, the commandments of men. Verse 8, the traditions of men. Verse 9, your own tradition. Verse 13, your tradition that you handed down. Their authority was the teaching of these famous rabbis from this 400 years where God was not speaking a new, fresh word to them. They even made the wicked claim that Moses on Mount Sinai had received two laws from God, the written law and this oral tradition. So here's the Old Testament. We hold it in high esteem, and somehow this oral teaching of these men had reached the same level to where they were actually claiming God delivered this to us. So J.C. Ryle says this, the first step of the Pharisees was to add their traditions to the Scriptures as useful supplements. The second was to place them on a level with the Word of God and give them equal authority. The last was to honor them above Scripture and to degrade Scripture from its lawful position. Practically, the traditions of men were everything and the Word of God was nothing at all. Obedience to the traditions constituted true religion. Obedience to scriptures was lost altogether. It's a mournful fact that Christians have, too far, have far too often walked in the steps of the Pharisees in this matter. The very same process has taken place over and over again. The very same consequences have resulted. This is why we spent time at the beginning talking about what for many of you may have been really boring facts about Judaism and the Pharisees and what's going on with ritual washing It's because of this truth that J.C. Ryle just spoke. This is why this Reformation battle cry, sola scriptura, scripture alone as the authority, is so important. Because whenever any other authority is introduced alongside scripture, that authority tends to increase and biblical authority almost totally disappears. We can see this clearly in Roman Catholicism. Look at some of its most visible features. The mass, the priesthood, the papacy, the confessional. These all come from holy traditions and not the Bible. And they're some of the things we associate most closely with that religion. You can see it in liberal mainline denomination where the authority of cultural opinion has been introduced alongside the Bible and has supplanted biblical authority. And so any notion of a God of the Bible who's sovereign, who judges, who has wrath is almost entirely rejected in these churches. In my notes, the word churches is in quotes (laughs) because I couldn't bring myself to call them churches without putting quotes in my note. I I read uh, one of the well-known biblical uh, New Testament scholars uh, used in Christian colleges All across the country, one of the most well-known guys in in, uh, an article he wrote, uh, who comes from, he's part of one of these mainline denominations, these liberal denominations, and he said, yeah, it's true, as a biblical scholar, I can't help but deny the Bible is incredibly clear in its teaching on homosexuality. But we reject that teaching and we appeal to another authority, the authority of the human experience. So you can see even somebody who's devoted their entire life 
to biblical study, you introduce a new authority alongside Scripture, and all of a sudden that one is all that matters and Scripture is degraded. We can even see it in evangelical, Bible-believing churches like ours, where you hear phrases like this all the time. Yes, God speaks in the Bible, but I want to hear his voice. We're introducing a new thing. Yes, it's great. God really does speak in here, but have you read Jesus Calling? Oh, that's him talking right to us. It's a new authority. It's a new authority being introduced alongside Scripture, and we are in danger of it just as easily as the people we can look outside of our windows at and see that they're in danger. That's why it matters that we understand what happened with these Pharisees because they started off with good intentions. So how does Jesus respond to these people that started off with good intentions that are concerned for these rules that would keep us from crossing the line? That seems like such a good idea. We do that as parents with our kids. How does he respond to these people that have gathered around him that appeal to man's authority who are trying to intimidate him and to stop him from preaching? Look at verse 6. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. How does Jesus respond? He utterly rejects their man-made religion. He says their worship is in vain. It's lip service. It's the faith of hypocrites. It's not from God, and it does not lead men to God. It looks like it should. On the outside, looking in, this this looks like the kind of religion that would lead men to God because you're not going to break God's law as long as you follow all of these man-made rules, and that's going to bring you into God's favor. It looks like it's really spiritual and good, and Jesus says it's not from God and it will not lead men to God. It will do the opposite. It is false worship and it should be abandoned immediately. That's Jesus' response to these guys. Now, 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 now we here at Eden Worship Center, and this happens, some of you are, might be thinking it right now and you're thinking, I'm glad he's going. I'm glad I heard that announcement that, that just like four more weeks, I'm just going to hold on. Because if you mention anything else and and have the audacity to say that they're wrong, then people go, you think you're the only one that's right. I want to tell you, we don't think we're the only ones that are right. There there are people who are, are, are loving the Lord, who are faithful Christians in every denomination, even some of the ones I talked about this morning. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we disagree but we do believe there are such things as false religions. People who are sincerely passionate, who believe things that are absolutely wrong, and that those who teach these things are false teachers. Those who practice them are in grave danger. And that these practices must be abandoned because it is false worship that God does not accept. So Charles Spurgeon says this, if you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. These Pharisees and teachers of the law were deeply religious men and they were absolutely wrong. 
They were absolutely wrong. And there may have been sincerity at the start. There may have even been glimpses of sincerity. They may have even felt sincere. But when Jesus points his fingers at them, he doesn't say, oh, you're sincere, you mean well. He says they're wicked men with wicked hearts. Because that's what false teaching does to our hearts. That's why it matters. Sincere people don't stay sincere when they buy into false teaching. What made their religion wrong according to Jesus? Why did he hate their teaching so much? This seems like a pretty innocuous thing. Just go through, wash your hands, good. Why did he hate this so much? Number one, their religion was man-made. Verse seven, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You hear how angry he is? You have a fine way of rejecting God's commandments. See, God has told us what he wants from us. God has revealed that to us. He has graciously, he himself, given us his word, given us his commandments, which is the absolute, supreme, authoritative, infallible, unchanging standard for all of our lives, for all of worship. God tells us that we should worship him. He tells us how we should worship him. He tells us how we should live. We don't just get to make things up. We don't get to, to make up the God of our own choosing, whatever version we want. We don't get to make up that, who this God is and what he wants from us. We don't get to make up our own morality, what's right and what's wrong. We don't get to make up what the church is supposed to be like. We don't get to make up what kind of husband or wife or parent we're supposed to be. God has already spoken definitively on these things, and what he has said is perfect. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to add to it. We don't get to take away from it. Psalm 19 Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. In the Bible, God has given to us unimaginable treasures. And what had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law done with it? They had let go of God's perfect word and they had clung to the commandments of men. What a stupid thing to do. What a waste of time. What a, they spent years memorizing the traditions of men. What a wasted life. When God has given us a pure, perfect word, a treasure, When we look at the greatest questions that, that humans wrestle with, questions like, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? Why are things the way they are? Why, why am I in the state I'm in? Why is life like this? What must I do to be saved? Now, they might not be thinking about biblical salvation, but, but people know they need a salvation of some kind, don't they? 
Just look at our advertising. Car commercials tell you you need salvation. Functional hell, beat up old car. Functional heaven, new Mercedes. People know they need saving from something. These are questions that, that all men ask, and where do we go to find answers to these questions? Where do we, where do we turn to? Where do we look? Do we, do we look to man-made traditions? To the thousands of religions that are out there? To, to psychology? Do you just look within yourself to find the answer? Or do you turn to God's Word? Jesus points us here to Scripture as the answer, as the standard. So let me ask you this question so that we're not just thinking about other people and yeah, the world's really like that. Where do you turn to find answers to these questions? What's the authority in your life? What's the authority in even your belief in God and what He expects of you? I have the great blessing of teaching at a Christian college, but I teach in the adult program where most of the people I teach are non-Christians, and I teach Bible classes, and they come into my classes fully convinced and full of confidence that they know exactly who God is and what He wants from them and what He likes and what He doesn't like. And generally within the first half hour of class, I try to show them that they're completely biblically illiterate and they have made that God up. And then we spend the whole rest of the class, the next number of weeks, just trying to work through who actually is this God that's revealed himself in his word. And the truth is that for many of us, we've just decided who God is. We've just decided what he likes and what he doesn't like. And the amazing thing is he thinks so much like us. That's the incredible thing. It's the amazing thing that God thinks just like me. Are you serving yourself? Are you making your own decisions? Or are you controlled by the words of Christ? Does God ever say anything that you disagree with? And your heart has to change? So their religion was based on the wrong authority. It was based on man's authority, not God's. The second thing, though, their religion was with their lips and not their hearts. Verse 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So not only are they dead wrong, teaching a man-made religion, but they are totally superficial. God says they're worshiping me in vain, and this is what happens to sincere people who are sincerely wrong, is they take a step at some point from being sincere in their pursuit of the knowledge of God to being completely superficial. That's what all of these Pharisees' man-made laws did. They removed that step of seeking out God's will in his word, getting to know his heart, and they just said, here's a list, keep the list. And for many Christians, that's what Christianity comes down to. It's sin management. I've got a list that I was given as a kid, and it's do this and don't do that. And as long as my good things are outweighing my bad things, I'm going to be okay. That's called Islam, not Christianity. And that's what happened to these people. It was completely superficial. There is a real warning here for us. God is not one to be taken lightly. God is not one to be dishonored. To honor God with our lips and have hearts that are far from him makes the almighty God of the universe angry. 
with us. Think about that. The almighty God of the universe personally angry with people who take him lightly. That should be a terrifying notion. That paying lip service to God is dishonoring his name. It's taking God lightly. You can have the best theology in the whole world and all it does is speak to your own condemnation because you are taking God lightly. Here's what James says. James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face on the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. It's possible to have all your theological ducks in a row. To know all the right things about God, to even say all the right things about God, and have it just be lip service that's not being lived out in your life, And that worship is in vain. It's possible to stand in the congregation of God's people and declare incredible truths. Behold our God seated on His throne. Come let us adore Him. And you're thinking about lunch today and you are taking God lightly. And your heart is being hardened. Here's the great thing about coming into God's presence. We believe that when we gather together, Something supernatural is happening. And we are being transformed either into the likeness of Christ or as these Pharisees, each time the book of the law is opened, their hearts become a little harder. Oh, there's a real warning for us in this passage. The religion is based on man's authority. It's with their lips and not their hearts. And, and then Jesus says of them, they're hypocrites. Jesus says in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. One of the things we got to remember here is this is a very public moment. Jesus is saying this to people in front of a crowd of people. He's telling these people who have Isaiah's prophecies memorized, he was speaking your condemnation. Right in front of a big crowd of people. Hypocrite is this Greek theater word. It's an actor, someone playing a part on stage. It's someone who, who puts on different masks according to whatever role he's playing. And over time, this stage word began to be used for people who were fakes, people who were frauds, someone whose whole life was an act. And Jesus says this, those who honor God with their lips Those who know all the right things. Those who say all the right things, but their hearts are far from God. They don't obey Him. They don't repent of their sin. They are frauds. They're actors. 
Jesus calls them hypocrites because they were focused on keeping this massive set of rules. They said all the right things, but their hearts had no concern for what God actually desired as revealed in his word. Jesus proceeds to illustrate this with with an example in verse 9. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. So Jesus, to illustrate this, he points to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and then he goes on to to quote something else from Exodus, just another chapter over that says, if you fail to do this, it's punishable by death. Part, Part of caring for father and mother was caring for them both personally and financially, in their old age. And so he introduces this, this concept that, that it's a strange word to us, but Corban, it's from this Hebrew word that means offering or gift. This is one of the traditions of the elders, one of these rules that came up. Something is Corban if you dedicate it to God. Well, that sounds like a pretty good thing. I mean, we took an offering. We could say that was Corban. We dedicate this to God. That sounds like a good thing, but here, here's the problem. During the days of Jesus, there's no retirement plan. There's no social security, much like how it will be for people my age when we get that age. Just a little America joke for you there. Sorry, guys, too close to Patriots Day. The only way the elderly survived is if their kids cared for them. If their kids took care of them, they lived with them, they were financially supported by them, and according to Scripture, parents had this coming to them. It was the obligation of their kids before God to do this. So the concept of Corbin was being abused like this. Corbin was a legal ruling on a piece of paper witnessed by a scribe. So you didn't actually bring the money, this this money here, this $1,000, this is Corbin. You didn't bring $1,000 and bring it in, you just wrote it on a piece of paper. It was a pledge. But it was a legal ruling with these Pharisees and teachers of the law. The person still had the money. The person might even still use that money for themselves. But this pledge of Corbin meant nobody else gets benefit from this money. It's dedicated to God. So what it did was it denied parents their due provisions according to the Scripture. So we have the commandment of God and we have the commandment of men. And these two things are running into each other now. According to the Old Testament, those who forsake their parents are like blasphemers. They had denied and dishonored God. And so if a man made this vow and realized, I have made an unwise vow, I cannot fulfill my biblical obligation in obedience to God in honoring and caring for my parents, and he wanted to be obedient to God, and he went to the Pharisees and said, I need to cancel this Corbin so that I can honor God's word, he was fined 50 shekels, and his wife was fined 30 shekels. That's about a year's wages. So a man would go to the Pharisees and say, I need to honor Scripture. And the Pharisees would say, it'll cost you. It'll cost you if you're going to do that. So the Pharisees and the teachers of law were binding men's consciences to man-made traditions. To serve their own greedy hearts. And Jesus absolutely lays into them. Look at how he emphasizes their 
responsibility. Verses 12 and 13, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus, you are making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus is angry about this. It's not just a matter of extra rules. It's an affront to the word of God. They were binding men's consciences and making men into blasphemers. And he says, that's just one example. You do stuff like this all the time. And so he looks these leaders from Jerusalem, these important, powerful men, he looks them in the eye and he says to them, you are hypocrites. This is courageous preaching on the part of Jesus. It's the kind of preaching that our world would call hateful, that our world would call unloving, judgmental, bigoted, It's the kind of preaching that gets people killed. This confrontation is a defining moment that changes everything in the ministry of Jesus. It ultimately will lead to Jesus' crucifixion. He will be crucified by these religious leaders who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. This is the kind of preaching that will cost you something. In our current culture, in our, in our country, and where we live, it, it might not cost you your life. But it, but it will cost you being an outsider. It will cost you being boycotted. It, it, it will cost you being called hateful. Again, Jesus, from this point forward, his popularity steadily decreases. In... Massachusetts, just this week, a state official confirmed that when, when this new law takes effect in October 1st, he confirmed for us that, uh, what, yes, in fact, what it could well mean is that if a church won't allow people to use whatever bathroom they want, a pastor could go to jail for a year. That's our world right now. Things are changing fast. This kind of preaching that Jesus did is unacceptable. It's unacceptable in this world. These issues, though, are gospel issues. This issue of Corbin, this issue of ritual washing was perverting the clear teaching of Scripture, and when that happens, we must speak. The church must speak to that. Why? Why must we speak? Why can't we just mind our own business? It's because of this truth. Salvation is only found in Jesus, and God has revealed this saving gospel in his word. The entire mission of the church is the serious proclamation of the Bible. That's the heart of what the church is all about. It's the serious proclamation of the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ, which is found here and only here. That's where salvation is found. When we read these words from Jesus, it's not just some historical exploration that It actually speaks to our modern life. It speaks to our modern worship. There is a real warning here. John MacArthur said this, God's name, I think, is taken more times in vain in churches than anywhere else. The blasphemy in the sanctuary is worse than the blasphemy in the street. Empty ceremony, superficial worship, thoughtless praise, errant doctrine, love of error, indifferent prayer, phony ritual, these things abound, and they mark hypocrites. 
What makes someone a hypocrite is that they worship God with their lips when their hearts are far from him. So the question we better ask ourselves is, how do we know if our worship is in vain or not? Jesus says to hypocrites, your worship is worthless. It's vanity. It's pointless. How do we know if that's us or not? True worship comes from the heart because we love God. And it results in obedience to Scripture. So how do we know if we're worshiping God with our hearts and not our lips? It's this. If we love God, we will love His Word. And if we love His Word, we will obey His Word. We can observe the fruit of our lives and see whether or not our worship is coming from our lips or from our heart. True religion is humble love for and delight in God. It is humble love for and delight in Jesus Christ. It's, it's a humble love for and delight in the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a love for and delight in the holiness of God. It's a, it's a glorying in the glory of God's sovereign majesty in, in all who God is. And this humble love for God leads us to love His Word and to love to obey His Word. Those who worship God from the heart and not just from the lips aren't just following a list of rules begrudgingly because God says don't do this and do this instead. Our hearts have been so affected by God and His love and His glory and His majesty that our hearts love to obey His word. And so if that's not you, I need to warn you. I need to warn you this morning. I know this isn't the the funnest sermon we've ever had. But given the passage we had, we weren't going to have a carnival up here on the stage. I need need to warn you if this is not you. Jesus knew that these men were hypocrites. They did not escape. No hypocrite ever does. Jesus knows. He knew their heart, and he knows yours. He knows if you love him. He knows if you worship him from the heart or if you're just paying lip service. He knows if you're a hypocrite and if you are, you're in some bad company. But we all have the possibility of being hypocrites. Of having worship that is superficial. Of having worship that is all about us. Of knowing and saying all the right things about God with hearts that are far from him. We all run the risk of being that person I talked about this morning who sings about the glories of God while thinking about the glory of lunch. That can happen to any one of us. It happens to many of us often. What's the solution then? The solution is this. Repent. Repent is a biblical word, and it just means I was going towards this goal, and I am rejecting it, and I'm going towards a new goal. I was was pursuing the worship of myself with superficial worship of God that just paid lip service to us, but really, I'm the one on the throne, and I reject it, and I renounce it, and I turn towards the risen Savior, and I pursue God and his glory and the worship of him. I want to close today by by looking at the testimony of a Pharisee. Someone just like the people we read about. 
Someone just like this, with worship that was vain, that honored God with its lips, that had all kinds of of zeal for law-keeping, but a heart far from God. While I do that, musicians, you can make your way to the stage. This testimony of a Pharisee in Philippians 3, the second half of verse 4. This Pharisee says this, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings Become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's testimony. He was a Pharisee. He was a a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was a hypocrite of the highest order, and God in his mercy allowed him to see that. And when he finally saw what it was, he called it rubbish. It's a, it's a word, it's called a hapax legomena. It means it happens one time in the whole Bible. The word is scubula. It happens one time in the whole Bible. It is a very strong word for manure. Paul looked at all of his righteousness, all his credentials, all of his, I know all the laws, I know all these rules, and I keep all the rules, and that's my righteousness. And he looked at that and he said, that is excrement. Why? Because he had discovered the surpassing worth of Christ. He had discovered a righteousness that was not his own, but had come from God through faith in Christ. Hypocrites desperately need to repent. If God is convicting you this morning and showing you that you've been a hypocrite, that you've been one who pays lip service to God with a heart that's far from him, you desperately need to repent this morning. But know this, there is forgiveness. The sin of hypocrisy is a sin that God forgives all the time. God forgives this sin all the time. Repent of your self-made religion. Ask God to cleanse you of your sin, and like he did for the Apostle Paul, to give you eyes to see the truth, to give you true love for himself, to amaze you with the love and the mercy of Christ. That's, that's what we remind ourselves of every week when we take communion. It is that we are in need of saving. We're, we're not capable of doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things to such an extent that, that our sinful dead hearts could be made alive. We needed a Savior, and we remember and rejoice and celebrate every week. 
I'm amazed in myself how some weeks in, in taking communion, I, I feel so sober and I feel so, I feel so mournful over my sin and so aware that I'm a hypocrite, that I'm, I'm these guys in this book. I know all the right things. I, I love the truth. I love theology, the, the knowledge of God. And, and there's times in my life where I love the knowledge of God more than I love the God whose knowledge I've been pursuing. There's some weeks we take communion, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm a hypocrite. God, why would you not throw me away? There's other weeks where we take communion, I'm just overwhelmed with joyous, oh, the victory of Christ. Oh, the might of our God. Oh, oh, the sovereignty of this Lord who rules and who reigns, who's putting his enemies under his feet, yet he's chosen to make me one of his own. And, and we come week after week to this table to remember the salvation of God. And at times we need to come in mourning and tears, repenting of the sin of hypocrisy. And at other times, God is reminding us that there is forgiveness and grace that we have cause for rejoicing, and all of that can be happening in us. Some weeks we feel one more than the other maybe, but the great joy of communion is this tangible reminder that my feelings matter not at all. Something real has happened. Something eternal has happened. On the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ took the sin and, and the wrath that this sinner deserved, and it doesn't matter whether I feel like it or not. On the days where I come and sing, Behold Our God, and I'm thinking about good barbecue, it doesn't change the transaction that happened on that cross. In those moments where God convicts me of my sins and I repent of my hypocrisy, and again my heart soars in worship to God, He doesn't love me more in that moment than He did before. This is the good news of the God we serve. It's so much better than man-made rules. So much better than the God we invent. So I'd encourage us, take, let's stand up together. Before we come, before we even start to sing, let's take a few moments here in, in, in the silence of this moment and examine our hearts. God in his Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, convicts us of our unrighteousness, even points a finger at us and says, hypocrite. And when he does it, every time it means the same thing. It means that he loves us. It means that we're his. It's one of those means by which he keeps that promise we celebrated singing earlier. He will hold me fast. It's one of the ways he does it. It's by convicting us of sin. So let's take a few moments to examine our hearts. As we begin to sing then, we can just come from the front Receive the bread and the cup and go back and we'll, we'll share in communion together. As always, on this side over here is wine. This side is juice. If your conscience leads you one way or the other, please feel free to cross the room and go there. But let's take a few moments to examine ourselves before we come.